Hey everyone, this is Kenjiro, and you're about to listen to the first episode of the Socially Away podcast. Just a few things to note before we begin. Since all of us have different equipment and environments, and we were sort of figuring this out as we went along, this first episode has a few audio errors that make it a little uncomfortable to listen to with earbuds. I'd recommend using speakers or regular headphones if possible. Sorry for the inconvenience, we'll have that sorted out by the next episode. Also, if you'd like to help support this podcast, consider signing up for a small monthly donation. There's a link in the description. Any little bit helps. A lot of people working on this podcast are arts folks who are taking some time out of their days to contribute while we wait for the return of the theater industry. As a bonus, there's an unabridged video version of today's episode on our YouTube channel. Go check it out if you want. We're on there as Soft Shell Productions. Thanks for listening, and please enjoy. A world divided by conflict, where nations are constantly at war, going outside is dangerous, everyone's wearing masks, and all the adult men have an absurd amount of facial hair. You're listening to Socially Away, a Studio Ghibli podcast, and this is not the real world. This is Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Uh, welcome to Socially Away, Studio Ghibli podcast. Um, it is August 6th that we're recording this. We are currently on the fifth month of quarantine. Uh, I'm your host, Kendra Lee, and this week we are joined by our panelists who are going to introduce ourselves by name because that makes the most sense. Uh, let's start with let's start with Coda. Hi, I'm Coda. Uh, I am leading the uh, Valley of the Wind Nausicaa discussion today. I'm very excited for that. Um, yeah, what else should I say? I, I guess. Um, uh, say so, say how you're doing right now. I'm doing I'm doing really well. I'm I'm pretty tired, but um, the movie and the taking notes for it kind of revved me up. So I'm feeling ready. Uh, Victoria. Hey there, I'm Victoria. Um, coming to you live from Washington Heights, New York, and. I'm doing pretty well because I just moved, and so everything's fresh and new and exciting, including this. In the heights. Sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, Ellie. Hi, I'm Ellie Azazalahoff. Um, I am in New Jersey, and I have a deep case of the quarantine blues. But having things to do, like watching his movies and getting pumped for this podcast, has definitely been helpful. So I'm very excited. Uh, Larissa. Hi, I'm Larissa, and. Yeah, I'm doing my best to just cope with everything. Luckily, I'm in a place where I can be productive as possible, whether it be writing, reading, definitely eating a lot of ice cream if I can, and because it's needed at times, as well as Ritz crackers. I may have mentioned that being my recent my recent desire. But yeah, I think watching these films has been just not only an amazing project to pursue, really this from really from last month, honestly, when we just brought the whole idea up together. But I can't wait to see where it goes and just to hear your impressions on all the following because there's just so much to talk about. And Ken. I'm Ken. I'm Colin here from Chicago, Illinois. Um I'll say Yeah, I know, I'm really excited to be here. Uh I've been doing a lot of swimming out of my mail inbox lately so you know i don't know i'm ready to do a little more swimming in terms of digging out some things that are inside my brain great um so now uh, i probably should give a quick 
explanation of what exactly is going on here for those listening in or who may be watching this when I upload the video of this later on. Um, if I upload a video of it, I don't know. Um, I mean, that's up to everyone here. Um, so this whole project sort of started because, as you all know, it is quarantine time for all of us. Uh, I have not spoken to... Victoria's, Victoria's like, oh, really? Um, I have not really seen another person that's not in my immediate family in months. Um, and... It just so happens the Studio Ghibli films were released when HBO Max launched uh, about, I think this was like three months ago now. And so I started watching them and it, they quickly became my sort of quote unquote escapist um, go to media dur during these times. Um, although this is not the most, this is not a particularly escapist film, the one that we're covering today, I should note. Um, but yeah, it just. I realized I personally had grown up not having watched all the Ghibli films, and this was a chance for me to just sit down and go through all of them. And I thought, well, why not also bring some other people in onto this? And that is the group we have here. Um, we are missing one panelist today. Unfortunately, um, Char, who is, who is also part of our group, unfortunately could not make it. Uh, she is currently on, a, on an acting residency. Uh, she will... We'll hopefully be back for our next film. But until then, we're here, and we are covering Nasuko, The Valley of the Wind. Um, and Coda, I'm going to throw things over to you. Wonderful. Well, I guess I should give a brief synopsis of the, of the show, or not the show, movie. My brain's in the wrong place. Um, so, uh, Nasuko, Valley of the Wind is... How do... How to say, I mean, you gave a l the brief little uh, sentence, but it, it, it essentially follows um, the princess of the valley, the uh, valley of the wind. Her name is Nausicaa. And uh, to put it almost disrespectfully simply, <laughs> it, it follows um, her as she tries to save her valley from being overrun by A, um, insects, B, uh, poisonous spores, see an invading army, and D, a giant warrior thing. Um, I don't know how far I should get into it, but... Um, we're, we're going into this assuming people listening have already watched it. Yeah, okay, okay. So, well, um, that's the synopsis. <laughs> this is my my third or fourth time watching this this movie, and this is the first time I actually was uh, blown away by the complexity of the movie, you know? Um, first time I watched it was when I was uh, six, maybe, six or seven. This is the second Ghibli film I watched after uh, My Neighbor Totoro. So, bit of a difference, um, and uh, I think the first thing that kind of comes to mind when you watch this is definitely like the the environmental aspect of it um it's a just in your face like humans versus um machine versus nature kind of thing um but it definitely it definitely points to so many other things as well and uh especially given the context of now 
um, quarantine, the Black Lives Matter movement, um, we have a problematic person in in the White House. Um, and so, yeah, just, just watching it, taking notes, um, it is a it is a very relatable, very current piece, in my opinion. I don't know. I should open it up for everyone to speak. All right. So all of our panelists, uh, we will get about a, about a minute or so to sum up our thoughts. I will be keeping track. Um, Coda remembers mute. Um, sorry, just <laughs> making note of these things. Uh, let's start with, well, maybe we should go in alphabetical order by last name. All right. Uh, Ellie, you're up first. Okay, well, I am, <laughs> I see the timer. I am, as everyone here knows, like the token newbie to Ghibli. Um, there were a lot of thoughts I had about it. I first of all noticed the different animation style between it and the other films I'd seen. Um, but the thing that really stuck out to me is that Nausicaa is basically aggressively optimistic. Like, usually when people consider like optimism, they think of it as pretty flighty and not necessarily like the person who's fighting for a cause, and her, it's not just that she's fighting for a cause, but it actually has sway on the environment around her, um, which I think goes in to show the fact that it, it can make waves, and it is important, and it is a power and a strength, and she's not just, like, a silly little girl who thinks we can get along with the insects, but, like, actually makes waves and, like, soothes the people around her, and I just found her very empowering. Um, those were my main thoughts. Uh, Larissa? Okay, where to begin? Gosh, so first of all, well, my first thought when thinking about this was Miyazaki's Dune. That was pretty much what this movie at times sometimes felt like. But also, it's, yeah, again, surprisingly and conveniently timely in how the film heavily features masks, of all things, in terms of its world and setting. As a first film, to ch and it's also just such a good choice to begin the podcast with, is in terms of just... How it's really impressive, not for like a feature of a studio that not counting Cagliostro that had not really had a reputation beforehand, and to see these characters that are based off a graphic novel that I haven't read, Ed, that I probably should just based off like watching this film makes me want to read more about this world and these these characters, is so impressive. And this is Miyazaki's first heroine, and it's one of many that I'm just kind of fall in love with. And how quickly I was just loved not only only her personality and the way that she reacted to all the situations that she was unable to control was so inspiring as well as just oh gosh there's too much to add but that's my thoughts on the thoughts on the film as a whole thank you um well i guess i should go next um because someone else like put a put a timer on their phone and like hold it up all right Ken, Ken, uh, ken's gonna do it is it going Go ahead. Okay. So my going into the my well my initial reaction after I saw this was that I could see a lot of the Miyazaki of the sort of Miyazaki Studio Ghibli staples that we know that we've kind of known about. For example, the environmentalist message, um, an appreciation for flight, um, just gorgeous views of nature, and of course the Joseishi soundtrack. But my initial reaction on, on when I finished watching it first was like, um, maybe this is a little bit underwhelming because I had watched. I'd watched all of the later, sort of later films, not immediate ones, but, like, as it had developed. Um, but then as I, like, sat there thinking about it, I was actually, like, wrote up an entire essay, like, uh, about my thoughts, and I'm not going to share here. It just, it found that it just still stuck with me, regardless, like, my initial reaction was, uh, I don't, I don't know about this, but then it still was, 
it was still in my head after I watched it. Like, I actually watched it again. It was like, okay, this is... This has more, more... This has a lot going for it that I didn't give it credit for on the original watch. I think any film that is able to do that is a good film in my book. Uh, Ken, is that it? All right, uh, now we go over to you. Okay, um, I guess I'll... I don't know, it was the first, first things I actually watched it way back when and then I watched it this time around and I was just taking notes. First things was sort of just how strong of a female character she was. I've been thinking about um, just like female protagonists in general and some Hayao Miyazaki, clips of Hayao Miyazaki talking about female, his female protagonist. Um, and for me, I was like, well, she's a girl protagonist, but if you just call her a girl, it's not like, it doesn't do her justice, I'll say. Like, it just, I don't know. I don't want to call her a girl protagonist, just with the, everything that surrounds the term girl. And then I'm a big fan of, like, sort of environmental narratives. And so the whole idea of, like, the insects and the trees are cleaning the world of pollution. That's, I think, one of my favorite themes that are touched upon in the film. And finally, uh, Victoria. Hello. Uh, so Nausicaa of all the Ghibli films is one that I have seen for the first time fairly recently, like maybe a couple months ago. So it's still like very fresh and like new to me. Um, I I think it's really cool that the name Nausicaa means burner of ships, um, which sort of has like, I don't know, some cool thematic like niche in the plot. Um, I also... I think that there's a lot of comparison to be drawn between like the opening sequence of Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind and like the opening se sequence of the most recent Star Wars trilogy. Um, that's just a personal thing. But really, I, I think that Nausicaa conveys the, the Ghibli perspective of empathy really, really well. Um, and is one of the films that I think conveys it the most beautifully. Um, and. Also, you know, I wouldn't say Nausicaa is my favorite Ghibli film, but I think that Nausicaa herself is possibly my favorite Ghibli protagonist, uh, which is saying a lot. So Wonderful. Um, and now uh, I fully cede everything over to Koda, who will be leading the discussion for today. Wonderful. I took, uh, um, following what all y'all said, I mean, it's, it's just Nausicaa as the female protagonist as this super powerful like figure is so captivating um and it's it's really easy to get caught up in just like her relentless again her relentless optimism her um she's she's very pacifist despite everything going on um might be the most connected to nature you know very very typical somewhat typical like Ghibli female uh, heroine but I noticed I mean it's another thing with Ghibli where like or Miyazaki where you have a very uh, complex um, antagonist structure right you don't really know who it is and and obviously initially the Tomekians are kind of the butt of a lot of your hatred as a viewer <laughs> but um the moment that struck me was that what was, what was the name of the uh her highness kushana I don't think she was ever K 
Kushana, there we go. Uh, <coughs> sorry. Kushana does reveal that she was also, she's also lost several limbs due to an attack from insects, you know? And so once I started thinking about that, um, I, the, the question became, who do you think is the, uh, who, do, who would you say is the enemy, if there is any? Um, throwing it out to you. <laughs> well, I think the enemy in Nausicaa is the enemy in a lot of Ghibli films, and that's sort of their aesthetic, which is that sort of non-empathy is the enemy. Because that, that's, what, that's what the main crux of each of their antagonistic forces is based upon. Would you... I, yeah, non-empathy, I, I absolutely understand that. Um, for this one, it was hard for me because uh, the uh, Pejite, or the Pejites, they also have their own reasonings. Like, every, every single kingdom has a united goal of surviving this apocalyptic situation, right? The, the toxic jungle. Um, it's just each one of them goes about in a very different way. Um, so, yeah, no, I get it. With the, the non-empathy, it's just like, I also understand, like, there's so much fear in this, in this world, you know. Um, to me, anyone else? Yeah, <laughs> to me, personally, I didn't think of it as an enemy, as in, like, like, the Studio Ghibli is often described as, like, the Japanese version of Disney, which isn't, like, an accurate description, but it's what people have described it to me as before I, like, knew anything about it. Um, and something that I think is very interesting about this versus with Disney is that Disney always has a clear antagonist, especially when they have, like, musical numbers and there's the villain song. You know who the bad guy is. And what I think made this movie so nuanced is that it was kind of like reality in that it wasn't that there was a bad guy. It was that humans have failed over time and we have now have to deal with the repercussions of that and people are going to decide the best way to do that in different ways. And so it becomes much more nuanced and much more... Um, falls into that realm of empathy because once you realize that it's so closely based on our own world and the way we have treated the world and now the way we need to react to it it forces the audience to have its own sense of empathy separate from just the storyline i think it's worth mentioning i would also maybe argue uh, no continue oh i was just gonna say i think it's also worth mentioning that disney seems to be almost moving away from the sort of like blatant antagonist model like with films like moana and things um because I think Moana gets compared to, like, the Ghibli brand of animation more than its previous films. But it'll be interesting to see where, what happens with that trend. But, Tendro, continue. Yeah, my thing was that I think revenge is also, like, a major antagonistic force in this, um, in terms of how Kushana and Tomekians are against the insects for revenge, uh, the Pejites are against, against Tomekians for revenge for what they did, they've been doing, um... And I think there's like a very clear point where Nasuka is very much hell bent on revenge after the Tomekians kill her father, and she is, and she like she gets to the point that she actually kills several of the soldiers, but is stopped in that quest. And like the rest of the film seems almost like her pushing back against, um, revenge, uh, instinct, stinks, and so that's my sort of thought on that. No, I don't. I would say that if just to abstract it, I would almost um, frame it as like tunnel vision. I don't know. I want to say like lack of conscientiousness, but then I feel like the characters can like 
they can see where the other person's coming from, but they have their own like priorities. And so I feel like it's all about just like, well, you know, I can get where you're coming from, but I, you know, I think my vision is, is the wisest one or something. Um, I don't know. That's sort of based on, I'm bringing that sort of from a place where, where at work I might butt heads with someone because I think of, there's like some philosophical difference between like my, where my opinions are coming from, someone else's opinions are coming from. Um, especially in this like age of diversity, inclusion, equity, like what, you know, I guess we're looking for how to like not make the same mistakes we've made in the past, which I think is really hard. And so it's like, we're trying to come up with a new formula. And in this case, we don't know who's, um, who holds the most wisdom, I guess. And, or maybe, you know, or what choice would be the wisest. And so I feel like that comes across in Ghibli films where it's like, um, they're faced with a new scenario where like the wisdom that they've accumulated in the past, you know, can, they realize can only help them so much. So they have to either have faith in something, um, but maybe in, in other words, uh, it's like the human capacity to, to look for reason, I guess. I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of thinking faith is, is the biggest thing here, but it's, it can be hard to have faith um, when, like, reason, you know, there's so much value in having reason and being logical. So, yeah. Um, I was thinking while, while, while we were all talking, um, it is, it's easy to point out that there are many antagonistic elements or, like, forces in this movie, but... I found myself at least watching the movie being like, okay, are there any antagonistic forces living within the Valley of the Wind? If so, how, you know, because every single, every single group, kingdom, the, the, the insects as well have all got their antagonistic elements to them. I wonder if there are any, and if so, how that, how that drives the narrative. Larissa, you had some thoughts earlier, right? <laughs> yes, I did actually. Um, it's interesting because looking back to what you said about Nausicaa and I know the idea of revenge. I remember there's a moment. I think she says this specifically to Yupa that uh, she's so afraid of being overcome by her own rage, and age. And I think um, it's interesting, of course, because as much as anger can be motivating, I think for her in her mind, it's the idea of blind rage, the fact that you don't do anything productive in using it in terms of just being so impulsive and elsive and without, you know, a clear objective, objective in a sense. And I don't know, it just made me think in terms of like, like uh, what's going on in the moment in terms of like how, let's see, your own experiences of anger and a sense of injustice that you want to resolve is, is happening right on the world right now. And how I think, honestly, Nausicaa is kind of a kind of heroine we all kind of need in our lives in terms of just like, despite all this hopelessness, despite never finding, a, despite there never being a resolution seemingly inside, you still keep going anyway because you want to be able to live and make sure the others around you that you care about, you want to be able to live as well. And I think one of my, I was going to mention my favorite moment from the film, at least one of the parts that really stuck out to me, which is when... Let's see, it's the moment where Aspel, the prince, finds her lying on the ground when they've both just fallen through the sand and just into the Sea of Decay is actually in the in the translation that I found, which was which is just personal aside, an awesome title, honestly, for the, for the toxic jungle. But 
and she just finds out how the plants and the trees around around her have created the system where there are no toxins or spores that can really spread the poison around and she he just finds her lying there and he asks her what's asks her how she is and she just looks up from the ground and she has a tiny few tears in her eyes and she just says to him um, I am so happy and that moment is so pure and I just I literally had to stop up the up the film just to appreciate that moment in itself because I think that I think it's just one of the moments in the film that really captures that desire to find solution and actually make a contribution to the world in a sense that will change it for the better. And yeah, I think that's why I really, this film was so wonderful to start off this entire just watching of Ghibli's catalogue because I think that encompasses Miyazaki's director in terms of how his films, as much, as much as they aspire to tell wonderful stories, they also inspire to impart just meaningful and important themes in his work. I just want to chime in. I feel like you could, when she lies down, she's like laying down flat on her face, stomach down. And it looks like the type of like position that someone would make when they're like, I've given up on life or like, this is like, I'm tired. And then, you know, she, and then as you said, she sort of has a tear in her eye. She says, I'm so happy that she like, it's almost like a release or something. And for me, I feel like you can interpret that moment as sort of like, Oh, she's an eccentric protagonist. Like she's doing, you know, her behaviors don't really match up what she's saying in in words. Um, but on the other hand, I think, you know, maybe it's not right to attribute eccentric to it. I don't know. That's something that I wanted to comment on. Uh, Coda, I wanted to bring things sort of back to your question. I've been I've been thinking about that a little bit. I think there's in the Valley of the Wind itself. I think there might be sort of and a quote-unquote opposing force in sort of holding to traditional uh, ways of life in a world where tradition is not, where in a world that is very much not traditional, um, like trying to keep keep clean crops and clean water, which is on some level about survival, but also also sort sort of stands in a way stands in difference to how, to how even Nausicaa goes about, where she tries to understand the Sea of Decay um, and sort of what actually is a Kazuntite, um, what, actually, what actually what actually it does, what actually it's doing for the environment, um, like in her effort to under, like figure out how the plants wor- work, whereas everyone else sort of seems to be be trying to hold on to that old way of life. So would you, could you even argue that it's like complacency? I would, way? yeah, I, yeah, I would. That's sort of the roundabout, the roundabout mm-hmm. point I was hoping to make. Yeah. And and I guess in a, in a way, Nausicaa is not complacent at all, right? She, she com- like very clearly sets what she wants to do and like, throws everyone else around her um to pursue well, that so i you know it's, yeah. i just want to point out a moment in the movie where she sort of says um oh no she's laying down with uh the boy that she meets um i forget his name but he Asmo. they're sort of like lying camping out before they head out on their you know additional excursions while they're in the sea of, of decay and he says, like, sort of repeats her words. Her question is, 
how, why was the sea of decay born? And he's like, that's a strange thought. Um, and, but I think, you know, she's very much about like wondering um, while everyone else is like, well, this is just, you know, terrible. I don't know, it's a curse on the world or a curse on, on humans or something. Um, or it's just the nature of insects. I don't know, the nature of, of nature um, to just fight humans. Um, and as if, I guess it goes by the law of, the, of survival of the fittest. Um, but and then I guess most of maybe Miyazaki's protagonists are ones who are like, you know, the world is not about survival of the fittest. Or maybe, you know, maybe it ends up translating to the, the idea that survival of the fittest or those who are most fit to survive are the ones who are not complacent or who um, can care for others. Going off of this complacency and what you're talking about, the survival of the fittest, one thing I did notice in this film um, really strongly for me was this was the theme of imperialism. Um, that the Tomekians are very clearly imperialistic, right? But they also talk about the Ohm, the Ohms having some sort of like hive mind, you know, they all communicate with each other. Um, and, you know, they swarm. Um, there's a, there's so many shots where it's like, you know, the, you know, the standoff between the Tomekians and the, and the Valley people. And then you see in a, in the next cut, you see the swarm of Ohms and then the next cut, you see the, um, Tomekians advancing. I think there's a clear, Miyazaki's making a, um, a reference to imperialism being some sort of kind of like a, a colony. Well, I guess it is a colony, right? Um, some sort of queen bee colonizing, you know, um, if you guys noticed it at all, or, uh, I don't know if there's anything to say about this, but, um, what are your thoughts on, on the theme of imperialism in, it, it, it takes me back to, um, World War II Japan, and I, I say this because the, my next question coming up is about World War II, um, but just, just for now, like, um, do you see any, any parallels between the imperialism in the movie and imperialism throughout history, or what's going on in the world right now? If I could kind of connect three things that we've kind of brought up to what you're saying. Um, so before I was talking about like aggressive optimism and then you were talking about the, like the lack of complacency and then we're talking about World War II and the three of those connected to me um, because I think often when people like think of optimists, they assume that they are complacent, that they're happy. So they'll just accept things the way they are. Um, and so I think that Nausicaa, someone who doesn't accept things the way they are, kind of showed that like optimism isn't like the dumb blonde version of reality it like you can be very grounded in reality and still be an optimist and so I think that's tied into her lack of complacency and then when you're talking about imperialism and world war ii though it doesn't have to do necessarily with like the japan aspect of world war ii which it clearly is going to be more important for a japanese movie um something that we talk a lot about world war ii with like germany and the nazis and stuff is about a lot of people talking about like well i was following orders um, and so that level of, like, complacency and just going along with, like, imperialist governments or regimes or authoritarian governments or dictatorships. Um, and that notion of you don't have to, like, have lost faith in the world or think the world is bad or, like, be a pessimist or whatever to be a fighter. You can 
have faith in reality and that be the motivator to not be complacent into the status quo that you're currently living in. Um, so. Yeah. No, I like that. I, it's such a hopeful outlook, isn't it? <laughs> oh. And that even for us, it's just like, yeah, we can't, we really shouldn't be um, complacent in what's going on. Um, Kendra, you're muted if you want to uh, Larissa, speak up. Larissa, Larissa has something to say. Oh, okay. Let me, let me just like make this gallery view so I can see you. Oh, wonderful. Right. Um, so building on again about like, because another thing about this film that I think makes it really special in my eyes at least is that this is a post- post-apocalyptic world specifically. And, and it's also really about princesses, which I'm very happy about. But um, in most post-apocalyptic films uh, that I've seen, at least, for a, if you want to have an example, Children of Men, they are very bleak in their tone, and they stay that way through the remainder of those films with only really glimmers of hope or joy that are often snuffed out very easily. Like even like I, even apocalyptic films, like if you want like a like an outbreak, for instance, or Walking Dead. If I'm just thinking of examples that are just so absurdly depressing most of the time. What I love about this film is that there are multiple tones playing within it, like including horror and awe and even wonder. And again, most of it's done visually, which I really admire. And gosh, there's too much to talk about about it. But as, again, to do with Nausicaa, I love like her, her vulnerability during so many different moments, but yet she's able to plan on the spot during each of these cri- moments of crises, as well as, you know, com- imp- impacting her love and her care for her people, as well as I've noticed her very sensitive hearing. She's very sensitive hearing. That's the thing I picked up on the film. I'm like, you are so, you are really good at hearing most things that I could not pick up, <laughs> up on. Um, and I think her first interaction with Tito before really he becomes, he just sticks with her by his side for the rest of the film, really says a lot about her as she, she constantly just tells him as even when he like bites her finger and she doesn't resist, he just, she just constantly tells him, you're not scared, you're not scared. And, it, and I just, ah, it's a good, good thing because I think, um, I don't know, the idea of, I wanted to discuss actually like the role of fear actually in this film in terms of how it can maybe guide characters' decisions and maybe how they perceive the world in a sense. Um, particularly because in terms of like the world they live in, like how much, you know, that fear really just affects them as a whole. That'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on. I like that you brought up that moment of uh, right before um, Tito becomes used, to, not used to, but becomes... Uh, Nausicaa's pal pet, I don't know, um, because, yeah, um, there, as, as you said, is it Ellie? Yeah. It's Ellie, I just spell it like Ellie. that, El- like, okay, so, as, as Ellie, you said about, like, the, um, unrelenting optimism, which, again, yeah, I've said that several times now, but also the faith and whatnot, um, one thing I did, I did notice, though, is that, the the process of her uh, earning his trust revolves her involves her getting bitten right but there's so many moments where she has to sacrifice something in order to gain trust you know um, I wonder if that's a recurring theme where if you guys noticed any other moments where there was like a ma- there were major sacrifices made you know but how that connects to the movie? I mean, on a grander scheme than a personhood, the in within the movie itself, the trees, the nature, the water, they have to die and decompose and then be fossilized to then be reborn. 
So it is this kind of inherent nature that like loss is part of the process or like pain is part of the process, but the ultimate good is worth it. Going off of that, would you even be able to argue that fear is part of the process? Yeah, I'd say so. I think loss and pain inherently have fear attached to it. I think that's human reaction. Um, Anxiety and fear and just being scared is just part of being human. Um, And they don't necessarily focus a ton. They focus on the villagers' fear a lot. They never really focus on Nausicaa's fear, um, if I recall. But I think, like, the villagers themselves are, like painted as being brave even though they are scared because that is being human and though Nausicaa's a badass princess who can fight anyone and calm ohms down with a whistle um being scared is part of it and reacting to pain and fear and the fear of loss the fear of death with being scared and admitting to that doesn't make you weaker in any capacity yeah I think that the fear is really important because like Nausicaa showing fear and acknowledging that she is scared in that moment, you know, acknowledges that these ohms are like a really powerful force to like be respected and to be taken seriously. Whereas, you know, the other, some of the other forces might be like, oh, these are just, you know, bugs to be squashed. You know? I mean, even for the animals, right? The fear is the thing that, bl- that drives them into a blind rage. There's so many times where Nausicaa's like, you're just scared, you know? Like, you're, you don't have to be scared. You don't have to be scared. Um, and then, it, ha- watching the movie with that kind of lens, um, it really struck me when the Telmechian soldiers, they just retreat. <laughs> you know, they just abandon ship pretty quick in that, in, when they see the oncoming rampage. Um, and I, I'm not really sure what that tells, but like... Um, because there, there is fear itself a sacrifice. I don't know. Is fear the thing that prevents you from making it, from making those choices? Um, you know, what is it? What is the difference between those two? You know, between the Tomekian soldiers who were who abandoned out of fear, and the Valley of the Wind people who, you know. Because they're both scared, and, like, both are very understandable responses. I think that, like, the Valley people have had Nausicaa as a leader for her whole life. She's probably, like, 15 or something. But they've had her around, and something about Nausicaa that makes her such a badass is that she's very steadfast in her beliefs. And even though when she has moments of fear, like, she never wavers, um, which is very rare. Most people waver. It's the normal thing to waver. So for the villagers, for them, they're never shamed for being scared because being scared is the human reaction, but they've already been taught that, like, when you're scared, you keep moving forward, and you move through it, because that's the only way to continue, and these other, the other nations, when they come in, they don't have that experience, they don't have that role model, they don't have that paradigm, so they're, like, facing these big bads for the first time, also the villagers face a lot more consistent big bads, they're in a valley right next to their jungle, um, that they run scared, because they don't know that they can fight past the scaredness, fear. That's the word, the fear. Could you argue, though, that... Uh, what was her name again? Uh, the, the, the queen. Kushana. Kushana. I keep, I keep thinking Ahsoka, and I'm like, that's from Star Wars. <laughs> Kushana. So Kushana... Could you argue that Kushana is also a pretty powerful figure, though? I mean, she doesn't back down. Um, she's similar to Nausicaa in a lot of ways, I think, except for that one fundamental difference of which is their attitude against nature, 
you know. I would need to watch the movie again because I've only seen it the one time now. But I feel like an argument can be made of her as a princess and Nausicaa as a princess and comparing them as, like, literary foils and the way they compare to each other and their experiences and their experiences with fear and their notion of trying to save the world, but how they go in polar opposite directions with it. I think it's worth bringing up that Nausicaa is adapted from a manga that went much further in the story than the film depicts uh the film actually only depicts like the first 14 chapters of Miyazaki's actual original manga he actually kept writing it up until the 90s and Kushana played I haven't read it but Kushana plays a much larger long-term role in in the manga uh Larissa you had a thought yeah about like the um the similarities I guess between either character in a sense I think that's an interesting moment i Correct me if I'm wrong, but, like, there's a moment where Kushana, like, mentions while she's talking with her guard that she wants to be able to talk with Nausicaa when she returns, returns alive. And I just, and that conversation really never happens, or it happens maybe to, you could argue, in the end of the film when they're trying to rebuild their world. But it's so interesting that she actually wants to talk to her. And it's like, normally with any antagonist or villain that's so steadfast in their beliefs that you know that they can't change and the only way to stop them is to really, you know, take them down, I guess. Or at least that's how it's portrayed in most Western media. But this this antagonist wants to actually converse with the protagonist and maybe even figure out a solution by combining both their methods. I just admired that so much that that was put in the film. And of course, like you said, it's part of a much longer manga, manga series, which had more time to expand in her character there in terms of the changes she went through. But hinting that there's possibilities maybe for her to go through this new kind of development, it really helped to make her character all the more interesting to me in terms of beyond just this antagonistic role she played to Nausicaa. If I can, if I can say for like one second just about her as a character, just to like tangent off what you were saying, because what you were saying um, made me think about that, like the fact you were saying that she wanted to talk to her. I think in very subtle ways, they set her up to be someone that you can't tokenize, even from the get-go, that you can't tokenize as just a villain. So, like, I, it stood out to me, the scene where, like, she takes off her arm for the first time, and she says, like, my future husband is gonna have a lot worse things to see. And I was like, that's an odd thing to just throw in there in the middle of this movie, because they don't really set her up as that kind of character. But then I think it's kind of important, because they kind of set her up that, like, with everything, with her being the hardened warrior that's, like, very easy to, like, hate if you want to because she's so the polar opposite of the hero of the story and she is that pessimist who thinks the world is ending, whatever. It kind of humanizes her again and she's, like, she wants relationships and she wants to care and she wants to talk to this person that she's not just this fighter, this warrior, but she is a person. And I honestly think that that also is significant in the fact that they made her character a woman also. They, because woman like, psychologically, you kind of automatically associate women with empathy, um, whether that's a good thing to do or not, (laughs) um, so in that way, you're kind of assuming that she's already gonna be less hardened in some capacity, um, and then, like, in very small ways, they keep just reinforcing that. I wanted to bring up, um, there's that moment when they're on on the ship when it's on fire, and Nausicaa and Mito are, are trying to escape on their gunship, and Kushana sees them leaving and like like has like this spiteful smile like expecting Nausicaa to just abandon her as like form of revenge but then Nausicaa actually calls for her to join them and she has like this smile it's like wait what what um like that could be termed as sort of like like expecting not like expect not expecting any sort of empathy or 
quote unquote kindness after what she has done done to not Asuka and her family. Then seeing that kindness shown to to her even when they were both in the same situation, I think I think is sort of exemplary of like an interesting turning point for the character, but also also a demonstration of like her different worldviews from from really Nasuka. So it's kind of strange that you mentioned that, um, or no, it's not not strange that you mentioned it, but strange um, that that very thing that you mentioned is very strange. I think because when you look on later in the movie, when you um, she's like treating almost, or she's trying to stop the baby Ohm from going into that poisonous water, and she's like, "You're hurt," you know, and she's like, "I." I know, like, I can't ask for your forgiveness because it's just too horrible, you know, what we've done to you. And so I feel like that's what Kushana was thinking at first, like, you know, what, I, what I've done so far. It's, it doesn't, like, I can't ask for forgiveness. So, like, I don't know. It's kind of strange. So I feel like Nausicaa definitely can understand where, like, Kushana might be coming from. Um, but I guess there, there's something there. This is going to be a weird segue, but I'm, I'm looking at the time, and there's one question I really want to ask, um, because it's been really bothering me, but um, it has to do with the giant warrior. Um, one, what does it symbolize? And two, what is the significance of the fact that it, it was malformed, that it was born early, you know, and... It doesn't really function, but it, this is the thing that that caused the seven days of fire, right? Um, and so, you know, again, that that's why my brain goes to like the atomic bombs, but also it's. I don't think it's exactly that either. You know, what what do you what do you guys think it 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 means this? Because it's such a central part of the narrative, right? I think it says something that. In spite of like these much more there's these massive creatures that apparently can cause cause potential internal destruction or harm, that the most horrifying to the viewer has been particularly in how it's portrayed. Melting is the man-made is the man-made machine structure. I mean, you see one of the first images in the film you see is just these giant warriors just emerging from the blaze and fire. And when I see them in the film, I'm like, those are the true villains of this film because of just the destruction they cause compared to the ohms that basically are just looking after themselves on their own and again again the theme of like nature will just have its own have its own way in a way like um since we brought up both kushana Anna, and nazika if in my mind if nazika and tita paved the way for kiki and gigi then then nazika and nazika and kushana paved the way for lady hiboshi and sir and in princess mononoke in terms of their dynamic, as well as how the conflict is represented in terms of these shades of grey. And again, often in, most, in both those films, the machine-like like, um, items are the ones that are most destructive and cause the most collateral damage overall to not just nature, but like the humans themselves. They are obviously badly affected by it. And the nuclear destruction themselves that the god warriors are told to do, they actually do nothing to affect the Oms, as, which are seen as the site of the problem or issue. So I think that says a lot in terms of the commentary that Miyazaki has in terms of what it means to have a war, that it means to have a war in terms of what you're fighting for and what you're ultimately using the machines you create to do. 
Yeah, I mean, the other thing that's a theme that you that just does keep coming. It's just like a continual thing, and all Ghibli films. I know Ellie, you've only seen a couple of them at this point, but like it's very obvious in Howl's Moving Castle, which you have seen. Um, and again, there's another one of those sort of Miyazaki standards that was pre- that is present even in this film that wasn't actually a Ghibli film, but was like sort of the base for the Ghibli model going forward. What about? Oh, go ahead, Ken. Oh. I don't know. I love. I'll just say I love your uh, comparison. Just the atomic bomb. I feel like one could argue that maybe we brought it into the world a little too early. You know, maybe we shouldn't educate ourselves a little bit more. I thought a little bit more about like what it would be like in a nuclear age before actually making it public. I don't know. But also secrets. I don't advocate for having secrets. So maybe you know, I don't know. It's, I don't know where that argument can go. But just on on Larissa's point, um, or some of her points, I'm sort of apt to think about how people like to nowadays humanize machines, or like machines are like living things. You know, they're alive. They're they're running. They have energy. They're affecting things. They have agency. Um, and in a way, it's almost like at first I was thinking that that the idea that machines are the ones that are causing the most destruction um, sort of lies in conflict with, I don't know, with, with the themes that the, well, you know, with that narrative, you know, that machines are alive or like that they're humans, uh, maybe living things that are just part of the environment. Um, it almost makes machines seem unnatural, I guess, or like that's sort of how the, I think Ghibli films portray it, but I don't know. I, I, I'm open to hearing thoughts uh, against that idea. And then sort of the other side of it is that it does lie um, in accordance with that narrative in that machines, you know, just like humans may cause destruction around them just by living um, and humans or just like all, all life, you know, will end up invading, you know, like a virus will end up invading other bodies uh and sort of like maybe causing catastrophes around it you know just because of the way it functions um i think it's a weird just like to some some cap that that uh thought there's a weird uh paradox of like unnaturalness but naturalness with machines when it comes to talking about machines or thinking about machines it's it's weird. I should bring this up. Is that the the giant war warriors scene was animated by Hideakiano, who created Neon Genesis Evangelion, which has, for those of you here who have seen it, has its own sort of take on the machine as a living thing concept. Although it takes it to a quite an extreme. Highly recommend it, by the way. I like you mentioned. You mentioned a virus taking over, and I'm like, okay, well, we are in quarantine right now. Um, it's 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 easy to it, it's very easy to see like some similarities between the film and our lives. It it feels like um, not in like uh, there are massive insects, you know, invading our lands, but in the sense that there is an impending doom or a invasive virus. Um, misleadership, that kind of stuff. But where do you think we are in like this timeline? Are we before the seven days of fire, where 
we are leading up to that because it, it, uh, in one way, yeah, like we, there is a big fear of this being like an apocalyptic event, breaking out into a world war, you know. But then you could also argue that this is the post-apocalyptic thing. But in that case, what was the apocalypse, you know? <laughs> it's interesting that you bring up the... Um, it's funny because if you remember actually, like, not too long ago, there was a... Th of course, um, there was a thing about mur murder hornets, and it's... A, but of course, unlike the, that case where they were an actual threat, the ohms are really not that at all. It's just funny to think about in terms of the... any direct parallels you can think about to today. And that's just the, all I was going to say, but... Yeah, uh, definitely a lot to think about and contemplate. I really hope I can rewatch the film again to absorb anything I might have possibly missed in just in terms of individual scenes or interactions. If I may uh, counterpoint, the ohms are a threat to my eyes because they are ugly. <laughs> um, um, but if there is a post-apocalyptic event, what they were saying, their, their post-apocalyptic event and their form of healing happened a hundred years after the after the world burning in fire um for us if this isn't the apocalypse and this is the fallout i would argue that it's still the fallout from world war ii because like that was an apocalyptic event we had going out at once the entire world at war the nuclear bombs the holocaust like everything was horrible all at once and it feels like it was a long time ago because it was like 70 80 years ago but in the course of human history, that's nothing. That is the same era. That is the same fallout. Um, the same argument is made also with like stuff about like racism and the civil rights movement, blah, blah, blah. That people are like, oh, it's so long ago, so whatever. And you're like, hmm, 50 years, not that long. Um, so if this isn't the apocalypse, I would argue that it's the fallout from that. Isn't it really cool, though, that like we're currently talking, we're, t we're talking big game right now. We're talking end of the world, right? And yeah, I, I, I totally get you with World War Two being like the turning point. And uh, I think I think it was actually a thousand years, wasn't it? Um, could be. Could yes, be. Could be. <laughs> um, In the film, so, yeah. So, yeah, so, so my, my thinking now, you said a thousand years. It's been um, a little, you know, it's been over a thousand years. But I was thinking maybe this is the same kind of thing that people went through during the fall of the Roman Empire. You know, or or the Greek Empire, the Egyptian Empire. Holy crap! Right, the Egyptian Empire spanned thousands of years. It is one of the greatest um, greatest civilizations to exist, but it was cut. It it fell, and that that is a very apocalyptic thing. Um, is this kind of like the fall of what our, our current civilization? You know, it's, it's what a weird question to ask, but. Um, that's what the film kind of brings up for me, like, you know? Yeah, oh, so I, I want to, I feel like if we were to go by that time scale, you know, we could think, I, I'm sort of, I have to think of, I, I've heard a lot, I like work in a career office, and I'm sort of, I heard that law, like, the field of law used to be the most dangerous field in terms of, like, alcoholism and drug use. Um, but now there are narratives coming out about like, you know, people are trying to engage in self-care practices more, even in fields like law or like, let's say, in very competitive business fields. Um, just self-care is like a big thing now. So maybe that could be argued to be um, a sort of a consequence of our recovery or our attempts 
sort of like our orientation towards recovery. Um, but I'm also apt to think about there's a, there's a term, I think it's called the great, not the great divide, um, but it's like if you're talking about, you know, will humans survive long enough to meet aliens? I think that's a narrative. Like if we're, you know, the Fermi's paradox, like where are they? Um, and we're sort of wondering, well, is it the case that like humans just don't live long enough where they technologically advance to, to meet aliens? Um, but there's, I don't know if this is really bugging me now. It's, it's called the great something, but it's, uh, it's like a line, you know, have we passed that point in time or passed that point in maybe space time is, is what you can maybe think of it better as, um, where like we've gone past the point of no return like are we destined to doomsday now or are we um maybe it's yet to come or maybe it's every day you know like every day is a new line where we're like okay maybe it's, we're going past some points of no return now um i think you're talking about the great filter yeah 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 so no <laughs> it's a that's sort of my take on that if we wanted to think of this as like we've yet to hit the seven days of uh what was it fire seven um, days of fire yeah then maybe we can think of it like that like maybe it's yet to come and uh but like we're definitely like a well maybe definitely if i want to be an optimist like nausicaa then maybe i won't say definitely but it's possible for us to orient ourselves towards there um Part of me wants to say we are already oriented towards there. Um, I'm a little mindful of the time, but what do you what do you think, Uh I think we can, uh, I think we can move on to sort of final thought thoughts. If anyone wants to uh, throw in any last last things they have to say about the film, I think the idea of comparing the sort of climate, both you know political and environmental, in the Valley of the Wind to our current situation is really apt. Um, and I think a lot about, you know, how Nausicaa kind of throws everything she has, you know, at great risk to herself to protect, like, the Ohm and the, the people outside of, you know, her nation at great risk to herself. And I think that's what really will get us through this historical moment in more ways than one. And it's quite sobering, yet also quite hopeful to think that. In relation to that, I would say that... Um... I think it's the uh, what was I thinking? Come back to me. Um this isn't really an ending thought, but um I just really appreciate that the protagonist isn't someone like Lord Yupa, who is just extremely skilled and I mean he's such a cool character, right? He goes on the ship and he's like I suggest you should surrender. There's no ship to save you. And you're like, wow. You know, but um, I'm really glad that the, that he's not the main character, right? Because Nausicaa is such a, such a full character. It has so many... Um, I would even... I could even argue that her um, determination and her pacifism is detrimental in certain times. You know, but it's... Overall, she just has this drive and um, and just crazy amount of compassion, which is the thing for me that is really 
the saving grace and something that we should all try to take away from this movie, you know? So. Yeah, Nausicaa as a protagonist is... Oof, gosh, I can... I think we did probably should probably... If we ever go into, like, further into Ghibli heroines to discuss them, you know, in terms of their character analysis, then she'll definitely be one of the first ones to really discuss in depth. But, yeah, again, Yupra could easily... I guess from if it were maybe any other director or male director, maybe, or filmmaker, I don't know, maybe from the West, yes, they would have... Especially because this guy gets a knife through the arm and he doesn't flinch. He's, the blood is dripping from his arm and he does not move. <laughs> and he's just still in this cool persona. But I love that he's so much faith in her. Like, he's there for her more like a father figure in some ways when she, like, breaks down in front of him because she's so upset that she's unable to find a solution to help her people through, through like, a peaceful method. And I like that quality about him. It's a quality I wish, honestly, most more male characters off really had, honestly. But um, as for... As for just anything else I want to say about her, I mean, this girl, this girl is willing to take off her mask and to instruct the people, to instruct the people what to do, like in the middle of her flight. She gives them a thumbs up and everything. She gets severely wounded in her shoulder and foot when trying to rescue a baby ohm who does not necessarily owe her life, but she does it anyway. And she has to stop that same ohm from going into the poison so far that she damages her, damages her foot further. You hear her screaming while all this is happening. And then right after all this hardship that she's experienced, she stands in front of a stampede without moving at all. And they run her over and everyone thinks she's gone. But it was that kind of willingness, to, willingness not only to go through all that sacrifice and pain for a just cause that, you know, of course, allows her to come back to life in the end. But it really just shows those kinds of attributes to be... And again, who knows, maybe we'll in outside the discussion of this podcast, but it shows how those attributes, if you really put them to good use, can do something so powerful, not just for yourself, but for the people around you to make a better world, honestly. So uh, you want to keep that in mind, especially when I go rewatch it again. I want to give for my final thought, um, just highlighting something. I, I know we've ta- I know we talked earlier about this, about how Jilly films have, have like this strong appreciation of sort of nature um sort of that thought of how nature comes often comes out at the in the end and i'm thinking about that last scene the last thing you see after the credits of nausicaa's uh helmet below the sea of decay and also a green sprout nor just a normal sprout coming out of the ground um that's one of those things that really stuck stuck with me that i wanted to highlight as exemplifying that and how how this is like a worthy pre-Ghibli but still very much a Ghibli Ghibli philosophy coming through in this movie. I just had a very small epiphany which is that my subconscious has been drawing parallels from this movie to Avatar The Last Airbender which is why it said 100 years and why I called them the different nations and whatever and I realized because Nausicaa reminds me of Aang. She has that same kind of like, she has to fight, she has to, the battle is going to happen, things are going to happen, and she has to react to it, but still maintaining her sense of self and still like being an optimist within that. Um, and I am also very sure this is not going to be the last time I reference Avatar The Last Airbender in this podcast. And she also, like Aang, has that very awesome glider. <laughs> and we're going to talk hopefully about, you know, Miyazaki's relationship to aircraft and airships, hopefully in the future. But yeah, this is a good time to mention that's definitely a recurring theme in his works. And I'm hoping I can maybe bring that up when I get to discuss Porco Rosso, especially. I know it's definitely yeah. going to come up during Castle in the Sky. 
<laughs> there are so many that are, yeah, that are waiting for us. That, um, what well, there was one more recent one, way more recent that the, was the, the wind rises to, absolutely. The wind rises, yeah, yeah. Which I still have not seen. I'm saving it for this podcast. Right, me too, actually. But I hear I hear very good things about it, and that one's a hundred percent about flight and Miyazaki and his flight stuff is just so fascinating, you know, just artistically something you dream of you know i i could talk about flight but i'll say the insects the way they're in depicted in nausicaa i think you know they have compassion i feel like which we don't think insects really or like you know the insects can get mad and then once they they've calmed down they can show sympathy for the actions they've taken and it's like i don't know uh makes me think of how i've heard of friends saying like centipedes they'll they'll show up in the apartment and then you miss uh, killing it or something, and then it runs away, and then it comes back for revenge. Like, I, <laughs> I so narratives like that, I, I sort of I'm apt to think about. But I don't think that you know you might hear about insects having revenge, but you don't hear much about insects like having compassion. Any other last thoughts? All right, um, I think that wraps up our discussion. Coda, thank you for leading this. Thank and now you. we move on to the trivia game, where we test our panelist knowledge of our film of the week. Um, how this is going to work is that I'm going to ask a question that is a multiple choice question. Uh, everyone is going to give their answer, and then I will reveal who is going. Unfortunately, Coda has to skip out of this one. Um, oh, thank thank you very much for being here, Coda, and we will. Thank you. I can't wait to see you again for Castle yeah. in the Sky. Yes, um, I'm very excited for that, but. Thank you again, guys. Good to uh, talk to you all. So, and have fun with this trivia game. This will be really quick. It's like five minutes. Are are um, we um, banish? Are we are we banishing him? Is he not allowed to like stay in here? Coda has to. Go, you have to go to work, to go. right? You have to go yeah. to work. Yeah. Got it. My life just flashed before my eyes when you said there's going to be a test. <laughs> all right. Um. Each question. Each correct answer is going to be worth uh, one point. Uh, again, I will ask a question. You will give your answer, and I'll reveal what the correct one was. Um, our first qu question of the week. In the world of Nausicaa, the Valley of the Wind, most of the adult men are graced with copious amounts of facial hair. Of the following characters, which one has a mustache? Was it A, Asbel, B, Yupa, or C, Nausicaa? Yupa. You, Yupa. <laughs> Pick number three, my lord. It's number B. It's B. <laughs> B. The uh, Yupa. All right, you all were, you all were correct. It was B. Um, that, that was the easy question. Uh, all right. Next question is: What material is Nausicaa's sword made out of? Is it A. Ethereum, B. Ceramic, or C. Unobtainium? A. I'm just going to go... Wait, unobtainium is too obvious, actually. So, actually, I'm going to go with A. I'm going to go with A. I'm going to forge my own path and say C, because no one else said it. Unfortunately, you were all wrong. Um, oh, it is ceramic. Ethereum is the metal from Castle in the Sky. <sighs> uh, Nausicaa's sword is made out of ceramic. Uh, but it's like a specific kind of ceramic, isn't it? It has, like, two names. No, it's a kind of... It's a certain kind of steel. She calls it she calls it a ceramic sword uh, at the start of the start of the film. Okay, it, never mind then. 
And unobtainium is the uh is the metal from Avatar, the James Avatar. Cameron movie. <laughs> no wow. wonder I thought it was sounded too obvious, so I didn't go with it. <laughs> All right, third question: What is the name of the insect that crawls out of the Tolmecian warship after it crashes? Is it A. Hebikara, B. Ushiabu, or C. Om? B. B. A. A. Uh, the answer was B. <laughs> uh, so Larissa and Victoria get that point. All right. Next question: What is the name of Nausicaa's glider? And this is this is sort of a trick one because because they don't really say it in the subtitles. But if you um, so you're actually at a disadvantage if you if you saw the saw the dub version. But hopefully this will be obvious enough. Okay. Um, is it A. Java, B. Mev. Or C, Glider McGlider face. <laughs> Mev. I'm gonna say B. I'm gonna also say Mev B. Though if it was Glider McGlider face, I would I would find that. I if, it, if it was Avatar: <laughs> The Last Airbender, it would have been Glider McGlider face, and it would have been named by Sokka. So Ellie, are you going with B also? Yeah. That is correct. It is B. And finally, uh, what is Lord Yupa's full name? Is it A, Yupa Doric, B, Yupa Miralda, or C, Yupa Kaye motherfucker? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm gonna go with B one more time. I'm gonna can say can A, you actually. Say the first two again. For the first two again? Uh, a, Yupa Doric, or B, Yupa Miralda? His full name is Yupa Percival Wolfric Brian Dumbledore. <laughs> hey. Uh, the correct answer was B, Yupa Meralda. <sighs> and finally, f- finally, for a bonus question, uh, this is going to be worth two points. Um, any- anyone can answer this. Uh, um, I'm not going to reveal the answer until you all give what you think. Uh, Nasca's glider, Mev, comes from the German word Mauve, I must I butcher that pronunciation, which translates to what bird? Everyone can just give a guess. Stork. <laughs> that that was a joke, but also that's the answer because I don't know. Hmm. Um, hawk. Sparrow. My gut initially actually said eagle, um, but that's probably because the eagle was on the German Nazi symbol, so probably not that. I, let's see, I'm trying to think, because if it was named after a bird, then maybe it'd be something to do with a character in terms of her nature, but I'm just going to go with hawk as well, just because I can't think of one that'd be, I don't know, I'm just trying to think how that glider is so powerful and effortlessly moves and is so flexible to scenarios so i'm gonna go with hawk so the correct answer was actually seagull oh. um i didn't say the s but i was the closest <laughs> yeah i'm actually you know what i'm actually gonna give ellie one point instead of the full two bonus points if for you, that but only you... on the technicality that <laughs> it is white um if you combine my stork <laughs> and my eagle answer you get the correct answer <laughs> I'm not going that far. I'm not going that far, okay? 
Okay. <laughs> Steve, uh, sorry, that would be Steve. Um, all right. Uh, our winner for today for today uh, is Victoria. Um, former G Kids employee wins the Ghibli trivia. Um, Great job. So Victoria has uh, four has four points. Uh, Larissa has three. Ken has three. Ellie has three. Uh, so we got a three way t- tie there. And when we get get back to Castle in the Sky, um, we'll see who will take the lead on that. And this will and these points will sort of add up as we go along. Um, and that and that wraps up our trivia game. Does the uh, winner get a life size Totoro plushie? We'll think of. I'll think about it. Okay. <laughs> I will accept oh. nothing less. <laughs> Yes, very worthwhile. Um, also, just just for next time for the next trivia. So, are you going to be doing the trivia every time, or should the person who's leading the discussion do the trivia for each I'm, time? I'm gonna, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave the trivia as host of the show. I'm opting out of getting any points or any pri- prizes that would. Be- you would have won anyway. You would you can decide about <laughs> a giant Totoro. I will. I will. I will consider it. I will think about it. Okay. Um. All right. And so that wraps up the trivia game. Um. Just to note, we are going through the entire Ghibli catalog in order of release. That is, say, the Ghibli films. Our film next week will be Castle in the Sky, the first real uh, quote-unquote Ghibli film. Uh, And our discussion leader for that will be Victoria. Uh, uh, Just a reminder, you can listen to this podcast wherever podcasts are hosted. Um, um, And you can like us on Facebook. Uh, We're on there as Socially Away, a Studio Ghibli podcast. Um, we have a Totoro with a mask that was drawn by Victoria as our profile picture. Um, uh, and now it's time, I think, for a final checkout, uh, just to see, just seeing how everyone's doing now. Ken, how are you doing? Doing, doing good. I don't know. I'd say, uh, I'm sort of hyped now. I, I feel like I'm getting warmed up here. Especially with the trivia, I'm pretty competitive about that, so I'll make sure to pay attention next time. Uh, Larissa? In one word, uh, vibing. I'm vibing, I guess, right now. Oh, um, I was so looking forward to doing this from the beginning, and already we're off to really great start. I just this film alone produced so many great insights, especially in how we contextualize it, watching it now in the year 2020. So I don't know how next week's episode will go in terms of how we can relate it to that. Or, but I just I'm so excited to just pre- as hear everyone's insights and how they can just contribute to watching these amazing films so yeah i mean those were me- those were many more words than vibing but yeah in a word vibing <laughs> victoria um i am i love this discussion i am so excited to destroy all of you in trivia and win a life-size totoro plushie um uh and i'm very excited to pull out my inner recitation discussion later self next week for castle in the sky I did come from Zoom rehearsal before this, and this is also on a Zoom. So I am all Zoomed out for today, but I look forward to next week. Victoria out. <laughs> Ellie? I um, am vibing with... I like being on podcasts. I've always liked doing radio shows and podcasts. I am now stressed out about being tested on the details. <laughs> because that takes a lot more attention to detail <laughs> but i'm excited and y'all are really cool so i'm in here i'm in here for full devotion to these movies, movies <laughs> just throwing that out there i am fully devoted i just don't always remember the name of someone's 
soaring thing. You're gonna have so much trouble during Kiki's delivery service because oh most of the characters literally do not say their na names at all. Um, and how am I doing? I'm doing fine. Uh, I am so happy that we were able to come together to talk about this fi film and get started on our this Ghibli journey. Um, can't wait to see what people think of this. Um, like shoot us a message on Facebook. Uh, we'll happily respond. Um, and yeah, I'm just really happy that we're finally doing this after we've been sort of incubating this podcast idea for about the last month or so. Um, thank you all for being here. Thank you, everyone listening or watch watching the video version of this. Um, and we'll see you all next week for Castle in the Sky. Uh, stay safe, everyone, and remember to wash your hands. And wear a frickin' mask, okay? Wear a mask. Be follow the example of the people of the Valley of the Wind, of the Tamakians, the Pesci They all disagree on everything, but they still wear their masks. Toxic so wear air. a mask. Word. Out <laughs> there. Thank you, and we will see you next week. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Socially Away is a Soft Shell Productions podcast. It is created, produced, and edited by Kenjiro Lee. Today's discussion on Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind was moderated by Kotara Horiuchi and featured Ellie Azizolahoff, Larissa Garini Moraldi, Kenjiro Lee, Ken Lang, and Victoria Provost. All participants recorded from separate locations across the continental United States and will maintain social distancing guidelines for the foreseeable future. Our logo was designed by Victoria Provost. Our theme song is Ghibli's Waltz by Ross Bugden and can be downloaded at soundcloud.com slash R-O-S-S-B-U-G-D-E-N. Questions? Comments? Ideas for the trivia game? Feel free to shoot us a message on our Facebook page and give us a like while you're at it. New episodes are released every Thursday. And again, if you want to support us starving artists while we wait for the return of our industry, consider signing up for a monthly donation. There's a link in the description. Today's Ghibli-inspired quarantine tip, Nausicaa took her mask off so the old men could hear her. Don't be like Nausicaa. Keep that mask on and learn to enunciate. Mm -hmm.